everyone and welcome back to the closet podcast this week i have on social media influencer lizzie sabetsky with over 200,000 followers on instagram she started off as an amazing fashion and mommy blogger and really shifted into activism we're going to talk about her struggles with pregnancy loss alcoholism and ultimately her finding her purpose and using her voice for good as an activist with her amazing platform. Cannot wait for you to listen to this inspirational and really raw conversation with Lizzie. Lizzie, I love you. I miss you. I haven't seen you face to face since my daughter's bought mitzvah. Our, our little makeup uh, bat mitzvah for her festival of lights since she was a COVID uh, bat mitzvah girl. Um, you are such a firecracker. You are so active. You are so just inspirational. I can't wait for everyone to meet you today and to hear your story, all the stories. So why don't we, you know, I, I don't even know how I can like summarize a person like you, but I guess you started out as a kind of fashion mommy influencer. And from there, kind of went through, I think what a lot of us have gone through for you, you were like, you know, just posting clothes is not enough for me. It was like posting boobs is not enough. So what, <laughs> how can how can I fulfill my purpose and um, leave this world a better place than I found it. So go ahead and kind of introduce yourself, tell us your uh, story a little bit, and then we'll just deep dive into all the good stuff. It's so great to be here, Sheila. I love you. I think you are goals in every way. You're like this gorgeous supermodel, career woman, fighter, warrior. And I loved being at your home for your daughter's bat mitzvah. Oh my God, you in that gold dress, you, I, you're like Miss Universe, seriously. Oh my God. And you're like so tall and statuesque. Anyway, it's amazing. One of the silver linings of going through everything we've been through, um, in terms of Israel and fighting anti-Semitism is that we've really found this family in a sense of, of people with like-minded goals. And, you know, I'm grateful that even through all this bad stuff, I've been brought friends like you. And so, um, you know, I, uh, like you said, I started off as a mommy fashion influencer. I was uh, working full-time for a fashion PR company and started my blog, which was called Accessories Expert. Um, just as kind of like a creative outlet, I was uh, working with other bloggers as part of my job. And I just thought, you know, I'm a good writer and I have something to say, so why not start my own thing? It was um, never something that I thought would turn into a career, turn into opportunities to make money. Um, and so it kind of all happened by accident. And, um, you know, the whole journey from that point until now has all been super organic um, because there was no, you know, when we went to college, there was no such thing as an influencer career, you know? So no. I felt like I've, I've been making it up as I've gone along the whole time. Um, and so it's been pretty easy to not feel necessarily boxed in. Um so yeah, I uh, I was very lucky that I got in on the earlier side of Instagram. I think I started my Instagram account in like 2012, 2013, like right at the beginning. And so I was able to grow a pretty organic following. Um, and then when I decided to really shift over to more purposeful content, 
um, I was nervous that my audience who had been with me since the beginning wouldn't necessarily be into it. Um, but what happened was I was going through this really hard time in my life. I had lost three pregnancies and I felt like I was posting all these beautiful pictures on Instagram and it just felt like I was living a double life. And I also felt concerned about the message that I was sending out to my audience, you know, that life is perfect when it really wasn't. So I started talking about it. And at the time in 2017, pregnancy loss was still a very stigmatized topic. And it still is today. A lot of, especially in the religious community, the Jewish community, people don't like to show weakness or vulnerability. And so it was kind of this disrupting moment where I just went on Instagram and cried and, you know, took a break from the beautiful photos to really talk about what I was going through. And it was a really aha moment for me because my audience was so receptive to it and had so much compassion. And I saw that it wasn't just like influencer and audience. It was like a community. And so I um, decided to really take advantage of that and shift over into talking about other things that I cared deeply about like Israel and the Jewish people. And then, as you know, um, in the 2021 springtime, when there was the war in Gaza going on and Israel was just being pummeled in the media, I felt like I could had to make a decision. And for me, it was I was going to double down, continue defending Israel in spite of all of the, um, you know, friends I may have lost, not necessarily lost, but friends I maybe thought were friends and realized weren't, uh, jobs I lost, um, followers I lost. You know, for me, I was like, if if I can't stand strong as a proud Jewish woman and Zionist, then what is the point of all of this anyway? And so um, from, from that point on, it's um, it's really just been my path to be, you know, to be this proud Jewish woman living, living a beautiful life, sometimes not so beautiful. Um, but I just want to show people that you don't have to compromise, you know, you can be so proud of who you are, and you don't have to be afraid. And um, that's, that's how I got where I am today. There's so much, I think, in there to unpack. Number one, a learning point. I didn't know that, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews were like the Persian Jews, that they won't have to, like, portray a perfect, beautiful life because that's a very, like, Persian Jewish thing. Like, they're on food stamps, but they're still driving a Mercedes. Um, so that's something uh, new I learned today. And then also, I, I just want to, like, go a little bit deeper. Like, what was that first post? Like, were you posting Jewish content before the conflict? Or was it kind of like a switch that turned on? Because I know you do the Besher, like, uh, matchmaking. You do so many beautiful videos with you, your family, your uh, kids, you know, talking about their Judaism or holidays. What was going on kind of before the conflict? And what do you think changed during the conflict? So I had already been sharing, uh, you know, Jewish education, like these short digestible videos talking about um, what I do as an Orthodox Jew, um, you know, from everything from like explaining what the mikvah is to talking about, to really breaking down the holidays, you know, explaining why Hanukkah is eight days, that sort of thing. Um, but I hadn't really taken on the tone of, of being like a fighter or like a serious <laughs> more serious. It was still at the time, I think, very cute, um, which is great. And I think has a place. 
Um, but so I was, um, I was about to go to an event. It was, um, it was just before Shavuos two years ago. And, um, and the media and all these celebrities on social media had been posting all these really negative things about Israel, like gifts of Israeli soldiers, you know, looking like Nazis and just really offensive, hurtful, heartbreaking things. And my friend, Hannah, who was um, in the IDF, um, her dad is Rabbi Shmuley Boteach. Mm-hmm. She sent me a text and she said, Lizzie, we really need your voice. Um, she said, I said, what do I say? She said, ask Hashem and you'll know. You'll be the vessel for the work. Wow. And I was, I remember I was like about to go to an event. I was like getting my hair and makeup done. And I was like, I can't believe I have to do this now. Like, cause I knew it was urgent, you know, with things like that. Like if you don't do it immediately, not only will the courage pass you by, but also the moment passes you by, you know, the mm-hmm. thing with social media, like if you're not talking about it as it's happening, it's irrelevant. So, um, I, I remember I, um, had an Israeli friend who lived down the block and she had a, a giant Israeli flag that she had used um, for like different parades and stuff. And I asked her if I could borrow it. She put it in my mailbox and I had my, um, my makeup artist come with me and take a picture of me wrapped in the flag. And I didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew like the words would come, like my friend Hannah said. And, um, and I just spoke about, um, why Israel is so important to me, why it's so critical to the Jewish people and why all of these things that are being said about Israel aren't just negatively impacting Israel, but they're impacting Jews all over the world and they're putting all of us in danger. Um, And it was wild. This post was like, so it was shared by like so many haters, some, of course, some lovers, but it was the first time that I really felt like I got out of my echo chamber because most of the time when we do these things, we're, we're talking to each other and it's great. I do, I do think that's awesome. And I don't think it's a waste by any means, but there were so many angry people sharing this post and people like, I think some brands had liked it and people were trying to cancel those brands for like associating with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I really had this feeling of serenity. Like, this is what I meant to do. I'm actually, you know, putting myself out there. And if people, people may not like it, but they're talking about it. And maybe they will think about things differently. You know, maybe they didn't think that, you know, when people have this image of what it means to be a Zionist as this oppressive, hateful person, but I'm not oppressive and I'm not hateful and I love everyone. And I think that's why, um, I think that's why I felt like it was so important. And, um, that after that, it, it really has just been, you know, out there guns blazing. Amazing. So, you know, a lot of, um, when I, we speak to college students and stuff, they're always like, well, how do you do it? Did, is everything okay? Like they're, they're almost like looking, they want to do it too, but they're like searching for us and our experience to muster up the courage to kind of say what they want to say as well. Do you have any regrets about doing this? What have you lost? What have you gained? I just want people to hear it from you. You know, would you do it any other way? 
I have absolutely no regrets. And I think any time that you're doing something that you feel is true to you and authentic to yourself, it's you're never going to regret it. I think that what you will regret is having these feelings inside of you and just trying to cover them up because you're scared. And, you know, the reality is that people who hate Jews are going to hate us no matter how proud and loud we are. And so we may as well fight, you know, and, and my version of fighting is just being as publicly Jewish as possible and leading with that foot um, because that that's who I am. And, you know, it's not, when I think about it, it's not just me, it's, you know, thousands of years of generations that came before me so that I could have this privileged, blessed life that I have today. You know, they fought through persecution, um, you know, expulsion, execution. You know, I, like so many of us have relatives who were murdered and, um, you know, for me to get to sit here today in my beautiful New York City apartment and not feel an obligation to stand up for my people is, um, you know, I just can't fathom it. And so it's not just, I'm not just um, standing here as Lizzie Svetsky, you know, I'm standing on all the shoulders of the people that, that came before me and their resilience and their strength. Um, and so I think a lot of times we can feel like we're in this alone and it's like so scary and so isolating, but we're really not alone. And this is unfortunately not a new battle to fight. Um, and you have an army of supporters and it's scary, but we can't let fear stop us because um, living in fear without expressing your passion and your truth will eat you alive. I, I totally feel like a very similar way. I feel like I couldn't um, not speak up. And uh, one of our previous guests said he went almost went into survival mode. <laughs> so I feel like some things have been lost, but I think so much more has been gained. And I always say the antidote to depression is purpose. And so this has been so purposeful for me. And I know it has been for you as well. I do want to get into, I heard you speak on another podcast about your struggles with alcohol as well. And I kind of want to tie it into this. And I don't know if it ties in at all or if I'm just making it, does, it up. It does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it away then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So actually, um, so I, um, you know, I think that I had been bottling up a lot. And um, I would never say that anything in my life other than maybe my genetic makeup made me an alcoholic, you know, like I, I was born with this mind and this adverse reaction and this overwhelming need to escape and this constant feeling of like, there was this like hole in my heart, like I, that I could, nothing could fill, mm -hmm. um, that I was like seeking outside sources to, to fill. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you have that kind of feeling, um, when you're going through other hard things, it just gets, the hole gets so much bigger. And so um, when I was going through this um, decision to um, stand up for Israel and stand up for the Jewish people, and I was receiving 
you know, death threats and, and constant hate, as I'm sure you've experienced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got really overwhelmed and um, I, it was like, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept how many people hated us and how I think maybe I was just naive and idealistic and having my eyes open to it and having it directed to me personally um, was, was shocking. And so my coping mechanism was to drink. And so of course that's how I coped with, with this. Um, And it really just started to spiral out of control for me. And, um, ultimately it was a pretty fast downward spiral. Um, and I was, um, I was doing a live, I was drinking a lot and I was doing a live with, um, the Israeli consulate of, uh, the Israeli consulate of New York, Asaf, Mm -hmm. who just recently stepped down and, um, and I was so drunk that I had asked Ira to like be a part of the live with me because I was just nervous, whatever. And um, and it was just really like embarrassing. And it was the first time that other people kind of saw my messiness that I was able to hide so well, as we explained, you know, like I was always really good at um, at covering up my issues because I wanted to be in denial myself. And Mm -hmm. so, um, when it was over, I really had this like white light moment that if I continued the way I was going, it was going to ruin everything for me. And I knew that I had so much purpose and so much that I needed to do. And like this issue was taking over my life and it was just getting in the way. Um, and I think that it happened so hard and so fast, like it had been building for many years, but the downward spiral was really hard and fast. Um, and I think it had to be that way so that I could like really face it head on, which I did. Like I just completely surrendered. Um, to how did, how did, what does that look like? How did, what does complete surrender look like? Well, for me, it was, a 12 step program, um, mm-hmm. which like I'm extremely committed to. And, um, you know, I did, um, 90 meetings in 90 days, which is recommended. And, um, you know, my, um, it was something I really had to do on my own. Like my family knew that I had been struggling. Um, Ira was definitely, exhausted from dealing with it, but also felt the stigma of me having this issue and was embarrassed, you know, because it's just not something people really talk about. Um, You know, we'd rather continue to struggle than like actually surrender and get help. And so um, I really had to to seek the help on my own, um, which I think it's really the only way that it that it works. Like I know a lot of people who are put into treatment by their families. And if it's not something that they're committed to with their whole heart and soul, then it's just not going to work because it's a really powerful disease, you know, and it's something that I deal with every day. Like I deal with the urge to want to escape the heaviness of life all the time. And like Mm -hmm. just how overwhelming everything is. Um, 
it's just, it can get very loud, you know? And so I need, I need, um, to replace the crutch of alcohol with something else. And for me, like my, my spirituality grew so much when I stopped drinking. Um, I'm not saying I would never push religion on anyone just for me, like, um, I couldn't do what I do. And I also couldn't stay sober. Like if I didn't have God in my daily life. Um, and it, that gives me the strength. And when I stopped drinking and like committed myself to this, it was like, my life just opened up so much. And I saw, I had, I like had real clarity for the first time. Like there was no questions about, am I on the right path? Like, am I going to regret this? Am I, you know, I would do that all day long and I would just ruminate and, and just spiral and so much anxiety. And I feel so free of that now. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I just described that as happiness and, um, there actually are scientific studies that show that when people lose God, they are less happy. It's actually in like the government archives of published studies. So, you know, there is a lot of research that shows, and I don't like to push God on anyone either, but I do like to push facts on people. And so looking at the generation now who is actively trying to deny God and replacing things that have been, you know, invented generations ago with like meditation, you know, that's like saying your prayers that you're supposed to say throughout the day to bring pillars and structure into a chaotic life. People are paying memberships to Unplugged where they go like leave, they pay someone to take their cell phone away from them so they can go sit in a room with a bunch of strangers and be quiet. That's Shabbat. Like, exactly. So I just feel like people are actively trying to get rid of God and like reinvent the wheel of how to live a happy, connected, grounded life where, you know, the instruction book's kind of right there for you. And I don't know why there's this denial active denial of god and i I just don't get it i'm just like it's already been done for thousands of generations we know it works why you know you you want to remove the word god and replace it with something else like okay yeah yeah it's so true i you know it's it's funny though i think my idea of god was always associated with this like structured religion and it and it was not until I really just started talking to God, you know, and um, I know people who are observant, people who aren't observant, people who are very like spiritually connected to God. And um, it's like, it just, it makes such a, a difference to be able to like hand things over and say, this is out of my hands. Like, God, I'm giving this over to you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. I always say to people, I'm like, you don't have to call it God. You can call it whatever you want to call it, (laughs) you know, but whatever um, floats your boat. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, there's resistance to religion for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, So I just, you know, you're such a unique kind of personality type. I always call you like a firecracker. Were you always that way or did you just kind of like grow into that? Like, what was it like growing up? Yeah, I've always had an addiction to the spotlight. Um, I like it's it's really funny. Actually, my parents moved like five years ago and my mom found all these old diaries of mine. And I guess when I was like, you know, eight or nine years old, I was writing all about how I was going to be famous one day. And 
I re- I wanted to be Annie on Broadway and I was always like singing and entertaining everyone. And I wasn't super talented by any means. I just loved entertaining people. Um, like I loved when I could bring a smile to people's faces and um, make people laugh. You know, I was always a class clown. I was constantly getting out, kicked out of class growing up, like all the way through high school. And um, I just, um, yeah, I, I, I think I was born that way. And uh, I... I've had so many different chapters where that spotlight has evolved. Um, you know, I, I grew up singing on a country music show. Um, I, I did pageants. I was a cheerleader. Um, I sang th- uh, throughout college with a rock and roll band. And, you know, now I'm doing the, the activist stuff. But um, I feel like the the drive is kind of the same, even though, the format has changed a lot. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've always been really, really passionate. I think it's just, um, I think it's just in my DNA. It's funny though, because my parents never pushed me. Um, you know, they, my mom is like rock solid, feet on the ground. Like anytime I want to do anything that's a little bit risky, or off the beaten path. She's always like, are you sure you want to do that? Which is good. Like I need that little voice yeah. in my head, you know, like I remember I had to fly back um, the first week of college for this big show I had in Texas. And she's like, you can't leave college. You're not settled there. And I'm like, I have this perform, you know, it's good. I had like, I had that grounding force, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have like a stage stage parents with me, but um. You know, I, yeah, I think I've just always felt like the drive to use my voice. That's amazing. I think for me, it was definitely an evolution when I was younger. They, you know how they always say like your real personality is what you're like when you're five years old? Yeah. Before like the peer pressure and like the world beats you down. So I was the one on chairs making jokes at like my parents' parties and stuff like that. Then I think with the move to America, I think, uh, I was kind of teased a lot and it was really tough fitting in. I didn't speak the language, all of that stuff. So I think I kind of regressed into myself and maybe just like put my head in the books and studied really hard. And I, I think now I'm, you know, as a um, grown ass woman, um, I think I finally kind of made my way back to my inner five-year-old, just sort of, you know, using my voice and getting up on that chair and saying what I want to say. But it's definitely, it was definitely evolution kind of back to that, I think. So um, beautiful. Yeah, I think it's yeah. So I always think of my own kids. Like, what were they like when they were five? You know what? what what's yeah. going to happen with that? Yeah, it's so true. Like the way that life molds you, and then you find your way back to yourself. Like that's one of the best things about growing up too. Like I, you know, I'm almost. I mean, I'll be 38 in October, and I, uh, I just feel like I'm comfortable in my own skin, and you know, owning who I am. Yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely feel like the same evolution. I do want to touch base on your husband, Ira, who's also a plastic surgeon, my colleague. And I feel like he's also very much grounding, no? Like you guys are kind of different. He's more kind of solid and, you know, by the books kind of, and you're just like this, you know, firecracker lighting up the world around. Yeah, it's really wild. Um, I always tell my singles out there that, you know, like, 
you just don't know. Like you think you know what you need, but like you really have to trust your gut. And for some reason, even though I probably would have never gone out with Ira if I had just like heard about him, like seen his resume, whatever, like I would not have thought he was right for me. But something in my gut, like my my higher power instinct was like telling me that like he was my husband. Like I just had this feeling that I can't even explain. Like you just, you know, when you know. And yeah, and he, um, he's just very square. You know, he's so um, ethical. Not that I'm not ethical, but that's like what he leads with. Like he does, he never has any questions. Like you just do what's right. And I'm like, well, but da, da, da. and he's like, no, like there's right and wrong. And we do, you know, he's always very black and white out about mm-hmm. everything. I'm much more gray. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, of course, had no idea how hard it would be being married to a med student and then a plastic surgery resident. And then, you know, just kind of getting dragged wherever his career took him and like, you know, so much alone time. I'm sure your husband and I could cut what? He's a brain surgeon. So. <laughs> exactly. Maybe not. I don't know. We're going to have to have another conversation. I don't know how that. When, did you get married in residency? I got married my second month of residency and we were only dating. For, well, we got engaged after three months and we were married at 10 months after meeting after our first day. <laughs> so you knew. I mean, I knew, he said he knew after 20 minutes, I knew after about a week. Um, and so he, you know, I met his parents at like two weeks. He met, you know, my dad, like shortly thereafter. And my dad, it was so funny. He met him and, you know, my dad never liked anyone I'd ever gone on dates with ever. So we were at Spago and literally 15 minutes into the conversation, my dad's like, well, I hope you have healthy children together. I'm like, dad. <laughs> play hard to get like <laughs> that is so funny I but my dad it. knew too my and I you know it's really tough because as you know with the whole match like you it's binding you don't get to like say like well I don't want to go yeah. Idaho, you know so I only ended up ranking one program which is called suicide matching for those yes. of you who know and plastic surgery is really hard to get accepted to so it was like ultra suicide matching but he basically after three months of meeting this guy he says either you only, and he just finished his second fellowship in like neurovascular brain stuff. And so he was literally just back after 14 years to LA. He's like, if we want to have kids, we can't like not have family around. One of us has to be making money. One of us has to be stable while you're doing your residency stuff. So I ended up only ranking one program after knowing this guy for three months. What was your backup plan? Like business school or something. Like, I didn't want to be any other kind of doctor. So if I didn't match into plastic surgery, I would have just gone a completely different direction, I think, and like designed furniture or something. Like, I don't even know. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, know. Hashem took care of you. No, I always say like 2013, you know, was the, actually it was like, yeah, it was, when was it? 2000 when I finished. 2005, I like matched in residency and matched in life too. So it was, it was very stressful, but thank God, you know, everything kind of fell into place. Um, but yeah. yeah, there's never a good time to get married, have a kid yeah. or start a business. You just have to do it. That's one of my dad's pieces of advice, but my dad actually chose Ira for me. So yes. Yeah. I was, um, performing at this rock club called the knitting factory mm-hmm. and 
I had like all of like my potential love prospects there, of course. And um, I, Ira was there in an Argyle sweater vest oh standing my at the God. bar. Love and it. I, my dad like cozying up to him, and I'm like, this is so weird. And then my dad's like, how about that Ira guy? Like, how about him? he kept like bringing it up? He's like, you'd be great. You'd be great. But you know, your parents know you. Like yeah. they know you better than than anyone. So. I did have that voice in my head, you know, but that is, I love it so, so much. And it is really tough. I think being a spouse of someone medical school is not bad, but I feel like when that, when that residency hits and it's every third night in the hospital, that is really, really, really tough on the spouse. I always think of that Sex in the City episode where she covers herself with sushi and she's waiting for him and he never shows up. Yep. I feel like it's that over and over again. You're getting ready to go out, an emergency happens, and you're just like on your own. And How many nights I spent like alone at restaurants waiting for Ira to just get a call from, you know, the resident beneath him. Ira's not going to make it, you know. Ira yeah. says it's going to be another three hours or you know, you get you get a hand a finger replant and you'd be operating for like 24 hours, you know. Exactly. It's just and it was so hard because I had nowhere to put my anger because it's not his fault. Like he didn't he didn't want to be there, you know, and it's not like he's like out at the strip club or in Vegas or something, you know. He yeah. he's at work trying to And he's like helping someone like get yeah. their function of their hand back. So Yeah. <laughs> you... it, it was really lonely and you know, I had both of my older daughters um, with, during that whole chapter. And, you know, I was alone. I was parenting alone. I was alone in, on all the holidays, you know, um, every Shabbos pretty much. Because even if he would be able to come, he could get call called in at any time. So, yes. you know, um, I never thought that the, the thing is like, I never thought it would be any other way because that was all I knew. And so when that chapter ended and I actually, he has control over his schedule now, it's like just a totally different world. You're so you grateful. Know? You're like, I'm so grateful. Yeah. It's like the things that people take for granted. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm so grateful for that too. And I always tell you know, people that especially women, you know how they say you can have it all, but not all at the same time. I feel like you can have it all all at the same time. It just takes a while to get there. Uh, and, you know, and but you can like I truly right now feel like I have it all at the same time. But yeah. um, I certainly didn't for most of my life. So it's a huge investment. I mean, huge investment. If I had a child that wanted to be a doctor, like I would want them to have their eyes open. I was blind. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And when you're married to it, you know, you go through it, through it with them. I may not be sewing people up, but. No, you are going through with them hundred yeah. percent. And single parenting um, is not easy at all. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. All right, Lizzie, this was amazing. I'm so happy that we got to chat today. Um, I, I could talk really, forever. I know. Like we really, I, I think I, I got invited to New York later on this year, so I will definitely reach out and we should definitely get together. I need to give you I'm a gonna big see you in a couple in a few oh, weeks. Oh yeah, and in May I'm gonna see you too on the panel that we're on together. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, it'll be awesome. So so great having you on the closet today. Um, and I really do hope to see you soon. Sending you so much love and strength and more power. 
Um, you really are living your purpose and impacting the world in so many beautiful and wonderful ways every single day. So uh, we all thank you. I thank you and um, hope this continues for you and wishing you every success. Thank you, Amain, and you too. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you subscribe to my show and rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that you're listening. And make sure you follow me on social media. See you next time. Thank you.